Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Greg Strawbridge. He is the pastor of All Saints Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He's authored and edited a number of books, including The Case for Covenant Communion and The Case for Covenantal Infant Baptism. He also runs WordMP3.com. Greg, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. Thank you again. So this is our first Sunday in Lent coming up. Ash Wednesday is is this week, and then we uh, this is the first Sunday in Lent, and we start in the book of Genesis, chapter two, verses fifteen through seventeen, and then verses chapter three, verses one through seven. We get a picture of the you know, of God putting Adam in the garden, and then we get a picture of the temptation and fall of our first ancient foreparents. Yes. And I always point out the collect, uh, this is in the Anglican tradition, but Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, come quickly to help us who are assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weakness of each of us, let us each find, uh, each one find you, Almighty to save through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever and ever. Because that colic brings together the whole point. And I, as I was reading this, preparing uh, this morning, I was thinking, okay, now why are we reading this passage out of Genesis? <laughs> and right, of course, right. you know, it hit me. So obviously, uh, the temptation of Jesus doesn't make any sense. So everything's headed toward the gospel event of the temptation. It doesn't make any sense without understanding the fall, the the previous setting, and that Christ, the second Adam, fulfills what uh, man should have done in the first place. He, he comes in as the new Adam, the new man. The new humanity is the theme all the way through the Old Testament, by the way. And then you get uh, finally to Christ, and he he does the job. He's the true Israel. He's the, the new Adam. Yeah, and what I find interesting here, too, is the way that the tragedy unfolds, right? Like, they're not supposed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve says, you know, we're not supposed to eat of it. We're not even supposed to touch it, right? So, like, it's interesting that yeah. in her mind, God already starts to seem uh, stricter, more tyrannical, curbing them in more. It's interesting how she puts this sort of adds a prohibitive step that's not there. It may be that, but I think that there's another way to think about it. Um, I think the one way to do it is to say, did Eve get the command from God or from Adam? Right. So maybe Adam also added the prohibition or something. Yes. And it might have been that that Adam was uh, seeking to protect uh, her in that. So I'm, I'm not sure that's a totally negative uh, thing that's going on there. It may be. I'm not sure. But it may be a reflective of Adam's leadership over Eve. Uh, certainly, we know that when, the, when we read in Romans – the account of sin entering the world, it's through one man's sin. I think that's pretty plain. So it may very well be that that's what's going on there. That's something worthy um, of exploration, I think. 
perhaps the fall is the most important aspect of it. And what we see in the fall is, of course, the response is, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, it was the woman who leads her husband to partake. But I would read that as Adam was fully responsible. That's why, again, later in the Bible, it'll say one man's sin um, or that they broke uh, that the that Adam broke covenant, says Hosea. Uh, there's a variation on what, what that means, but I take it to mean it's the Adamic covenant. Adam broke covenant, but he brought with him his his wife. So you can tell I'm not a total egalitarian on this point, but um, I do think that when you see it, uh, it it, show, it it illustrates all of the aspects of humanity in that um, there is a a fall through the lack of the responsibility of the husband. That's a very common reality today. That's I, I think in my marriage counseling experience, that's the normative thing, the abdication of the husband. And there's the blame shifting of the husband to say, well, it was a woman thou gave us me and so forth. Um, so I, I really do think that there's a ton of things in here, but, but on the gospel point, their eyes were opened, um, and they knew they were naked and then they covered themselves with fig leaves. Yeah. The archetypal kind of way of, uh, uh, covering up yourself and shame is right there. You know, that, 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 that idea, they heard and they hid. Right. So, the, so now yeah, like, hearing the presence of God is, is something that's terrifying. It's shame inducing. You know, the other thing I think is interesting, like a couple other parallels, like, yeah, N.T. Wright and some other people have said that maybe the, the disciples and a man's road are a man and a woman. And if it is a man and a woman, it's interesting because you have this sort of reversal of the garden in the Emmaus story in Luke 24, because you have this, uh, well, their eyes will be open, right? Like, and, and you'll know God. And actually what happened is they're, they didn't know God, you know, they're, and, and, but here with, with the Emmaus story, God comes upon them, like God comes upon them in the garden and reverses that. And they're, uh, they see Jesus and they didn't, didn't, didn't our hearts burn within us as he opened up the scripture. So this is kind of, the other thing I think that the other literary illusion here is, is interesting is when she says she looks uh, the tree, it was a delight to the eyes. I think of Lot looking over at Sodom and Gomorrah and it said, oh, that land looked great. It looked like him, to him like the garden of God. <laughs> yeah. And the well, same thing a, about the, the, yeah. these, these illusions that are interesting. Yeah. The, the, well, and you have to understand uh, when I talk with people about biblical literature and the unfolding types and patterns and chiastic structures and all this sort of stuff, people, some of them go, oh, well, why wasn't it just written straight up like a term paper in your English 101 right. class? Well, First of all, literary cultures that have, you know, generation after generation are a culture of illusion. I mean, we're that way, too. We can say a line out of Shakespeare and everybody knows what we're talking about. But they're much more so because they're an oral culture, not a not a, a true literature culture with reading and writing. Very few people in the ancient world could read, but even fewer could write. Charlemagne in the 800s could read, but he couldn't write. That's just the normal way it worked until you get Gutenberg and the Protestant Reformation, which I think pushed along uh, literacy uh, quite a bit. And I'm happy for literacy, by the way. But in order to get back into the mindset of the people, especially in the uh, Old, Old Testament period, we have to understand what, how they worked. And so this literary illusion is just the common freight of any kind of interaction. So you'll find glimpses of this story over and over and over again, just like you find uh, Exodus patterns. I was making this point last week 
when we're talking about the transfiguration, the last words that are said in the transfiguration is Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus about his departure. But the word departure in Greek is exodus. Who, who, who else did an exodus in the Old Testament? Well, Moses did, and, and Elijah did too, even though that's not cl- as clear. He crossed the Jordan River. And all of these things have a baptismal imagery, as it turns out, because the flood going through the Red Sea, the uh, case of uh, the Jordan River, John the Baptist goes to the Jordan River to do baptism. Why? Because that was a historical thing. Jesus, of course, his departure was what he said to the disciples. Are you able to be baptized with the baptism, which I will be baptized with? There it is. I mean, and what was the first baptism? The flood of the world. First Peter uh, recognizes that. First Peter 3, 18 and following. So rich illusion. And so the Exodus patterns are everywhere. And the, and the fall patterns are everywhere, too, in the Bible. Yeah. And so it, it's interesting because you see it all. It's sort of a. Uh... You read it both ways, right? Front, you start here and see all the patterns, and you can read back the same way as, as, as we will as we will see as we move on. Well, I want to say one more thing about Genesis three. If you keep reading, of course, this sets up. Now, I'm sure that there was wisdom in cutting the text off here, but keep reading, obviously, because it's when God calls to them. The what's the solution to their nakedness? Well, He's puts he covers them he clothes them he gives them new clothes well that sets up a whole range of things from the old testament tabernacle sacrificial system you know animals have to be skinned why do they have to be skinned you're going to burn it you're going to throw it in a fire well there's there's a typological point the new testament says everybody who's baptized into christ has what clothed themselves with Christ. So right there, you've got two things, two predominant themes. You've got food, eating. The first sin was a meal, and the rest of the Bible is anticipating another meal, namely what we know as the Eucharist and ultimately the Supper of the Lamb. And then the other great theme is you've got covering, and that shows up all the way through the sacrificial system. Those two things are merged together. So that's maybe some food for thought for people that want to explore one or more of those themes. I wouldn't recommend doing all of it (laughs) in a sermon. So on to our epistle reading, which comes from Romans, uh, the fifth chapter, verses 12 through 19. Here we have this sort of, again, connected to the fall story that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and and then uh, it is undone through another, a second Adam. And um, yeah, so we have this sort of parallel between the first and second Adam and one who led people into sin and into the fall and one who leads us out of that. Like again, a new Exodus, he leads us, Christ is the second Adam, leads us out into the promised land. I refer to you to my previous comments. Exactly. (laughs) Cite cite yourself. It's like I prophesied on this one, right? But uh, yeah, the the man's responsibility here should be highlighted. One man, um, it's very specific. And then death to all the world. Now, Paul is dealing with the law issues, under Torah issues through this. So he's like, Oh, the law was in, you know, before the world, before the world had law, there was sin and and that kind of discussion. Um, 
good luck preaching that if you're trying to preach that. Um, but the free gift does not like the trespass. Now, this is a really important um, allusion here. So we're talking about allusion a moment ago. This is Isaiah 53. Um, the gift, the one trespass um, brought about through one man, he's going to say, uh, justification for all, one man's disobedience were made. So the one man's obedience... The many will be righteous. Where do you get language of justify, many, obedience? It's Isaiah 53, just like in Philippians chapter 2, when it says, he humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. He was obedient to death. Well, that's the suffering servant. He is obedient to death. Isaiah 53, suffering servant. That's a lot of biblical illusion there, especially this, the many. Where do you get the many from? That's that's language. That's a quotation. Basically, a citation, I would say, a reference, an allusion for sure, uh, back to Isaiah 53. So I think there's a lot going on there that we could harvest in in parallel to that. Yeah, and it's interesting that, that you, you have this sense here that what Christ does is better or, or is, is greater. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, I love this contrast of the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. Um, it, it's interesting, you know, the, these contrasts of, the, of these two legacies of the first and second Adam. Right. And of course, the place where that conflict first shows up is the gospel reading, is, is the temptation, right? That's where the, the battle's on at that point, because uh, Satan's temptation in the in Genesis, um, now, by the way, it doesn't call him Satan in Genesis, right? But in Revelation, it does say that. It does make the it does make the direct connection to the serpent. So I think we're on good ground to say, you know, if we call, if we want to call it, we want to name it, that's it. I, I know all the stuff about shaitan is just a word for deceiver and all that. But in normal Christian parlance, we would just say the person whom we know to be Satan. Um, and so when Satan, well, that's like the church leader saying, like, could it be Satan? Could it be? That's right. Exactly. Um, yeah. And we probably ought to revise our common language on that, because I do think if you study the Bible on angels and demons and all that, we, we are missing a lot of categories. Angels are messengers. Not all, not all quote, angelic beings are messengers. So we, we kind of reduce it just by the terminology we use. Satan is, has, that's a role. That's an office. It's like saying president as opposed to Donald Trump. Um, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to make that connection. Um, <laughs> the greatest president ever to be better than Washington. Well, I, uh, yeah, I, but the point being that when Jesus is tempted, it, it's a perfect parallel to what was happening in the garden. Um, it's a parallel that's got all these inverse proportions too, right? The first temptation came in this lush garden that could fulfill all of your physical needs. The second temptation comes in a desert with no food at all. Rocks. Yeah, he, he says no in the desert to everything Adam and Eve say yes to in the garden. Or that they already had, right? They already had it. By the way, I, I want to say something else about Genesis 3, which I think is an important point when you try to connect it to the gospel. In Genesis 3, you know, you shall not eat of this tree, and then their eyes were opened, so one spin on that is, well, you know, we should ne they should never have eaten of the tree. Um, they failed the test, et cetera. Um, they, were had, they were under a covenant of works, in my 
somewhat Presbyterian tradition. That's been the teaching. A covenant of works, they were supposed to earn their relationship with God. That is totally wrong, in my opinion. Um, the Shorter Catechism says a covenant of life. I like that terminology better. But the concept that they were earning something is very wrong. They were sons of God. They were already the people of God, the children of God. They already had that relationship. What they were supposed to do is mature to yeah, the point yeah. that, th- that they would receive the full knowledge. Best picture of this, by far the, I don't know, I'm, I'm saying the greatest uh, literary work in the 20th century is Paralandra by C.S. Lewis, where he pictures the whole thing and he point he pictures it from the point of view of another world going through a similar thing. And what happens is they succeed and then they get the glory. So there's this anticipation of glory and they cut it short, which again, precisely parallels. What does Edward say? Grace is but glory begun. Glory is but grace perfected. Uh, but I say, yeah, yes. I think there's this- uh, and, and Irenaeus, um, the glory of God is man fully, fully alive, alive, right? This is idea that once they would go through the temptation and pass, all these glorious things would come about, which didn't come about. Now, by the way, Lewis is the only guy I know of. I'm, I'm sure there must be others, but he he really nails that. He really points out the glory of obedience and what would follow from from maturity of passing the test. And of course, what we end up seeing is Jesus does pass the test. And what's the what are the tests? Get it before uh, get it before you have matured there, before you've learned obedience as a son. Get the glory by doing a magic trick before people. Get, you don't have to go through the cross. Why do you have to go through the cross? Just I'll give it to you. You know that's that's the temptation that Satan has, and it's a good. There's you yeah, can it, preach you can preach that one. I think it's interesting too. There's this psychological concept of, of basic trust that like. This is what, for healthy human development, there needs to be with the, the the parents this primal trust. And when that when that gets broken and goes awry, human development goes awry. And I think this there's a picture of that here in the garden that this primal trust, this basic trust, the bond between uh, the divine parent and child here goes awry, and and the development goes awry. Uh, and I think that's you know the, yeah I think you're right. It's about life and trust. Yeah, and so uh, it is. You know, it, it's think just the case that when you read this temptation thing, you've got to have all this in mind. You got to have the garden in mind. You got to have what was the what was the trajectory? What was the eschatology of Adam and Eve if they had been obedient? Now what you see is Jesus has to then come in and and not he doesn't start from Adam and Eve. He starts from the fall. He starts all the way down and has to bring it back up by his learned and submissive obedience to his father. He has to go through the the other tree, not the tree of life, but the tree of death. And once he gets through that tree, then he's honored with the declaration, this is my beloved son. I'm, I'm referring here to, he was declared the son of God by power through the resurrection, Romans 1. That The idea that there is really glorification on the other side of it. And here's the time of year for us to meditate on that, right? We meditate on our suffering, our fasting, our seeking spiritual growth. Our obedience leads to the resurrection glory of Easter time. To the light. We're one, but we're not the same. We get to carry each other carry each other one 
On to the gospel reading, Matthew 4, the temptation, as we talked about here, um, where Jesus is driven into the wilderness by the Spirit. It's interesting. Henri Nouwen wrote a book uh, about the temptations for Christian leaders called In the Name of Jesus. And he's, he, he labels these temptations, first, the temptation to be relevant, uh, you know, turn the stones to bread. Uh, I'm this, good on that one. This, I'm good on that one. I'm this, totally irrelevant. The second one is is to be we have spe- we have 1045 medieval worship. That's I love thing. it. No, not traditional, not contemporary, medieval. The second he sees is the temptation to be spectacular, and the third is the temptation to be powerful, and all these things. It's interesting. Jesus resists the temptation by the Spirit and the Word. You know, he's 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 sustained in the Spirit and calls on the word. And that is, is the way he sort of rebuffs the tempter here in the wilderness. Why, why do you say he's sustained um, in the spirit? Well, I guess the spirit takes him there. And I think that, you know, it, 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 he was it descends in- upon him and never leaves. Right. And, and yeah. it descends upon yeah, that's Jesus. True. Never I, I didn't, I wasn't denying it. I just wondered what the, what your thought was. Cause I mean, it almost seems like, you know, there's a kind of, there's a kind of loneliness here that is highlighted. Now, you know, I don't want to get into Trinitarian <laughs> incarnational stuff and try to work that out, you know, with, uh, you know, a razor blade or something. But it, it almost seems like the the emphasis is Jesus is all alone. Jesus has no, nothing. There's no angels showing up before the end of this yeah. process, right? There's no, he doesn't get any help. He doesn't have anything. Again, Paralandra is a great example of this. The man and the woman are separated, and they both have to go through their separate temptations. And the man has, he's just, he's kind of isolated, basically. Um, and it goes, you know, the, anyway, great, great story. But I don't know. I, I I think it's probably the case that Jesus is depending on the Spirit. I mean, I think that's probably true. But I think it bears consideration, like, to what extent does Jesus or maybe, or maybe get that? He, he obeys the spirit or he he follows the spirit and and he's the scripture he also remembers his baptism i mean the baptismal identity here is you know he's calling back to he was the beloved son of god before this and then he he is led into the wilderness it's interesting um dale bruner's commentary in matthew he's got this great uh a couple great sentences on this he says the form the the satanic voice assumes in addressing disciples is something like this. How can you claim to be the child of God when you're struggling with big problems instead of victorious over them? Get rid of your problems, turn your stones into bread, and then we can believe you're in a strong relation with God. The devil will let Christians be satisfied with Christ, the church, other Christians, and themselves only when all these are visibly transformed realities. Clearly miraculous, radiant, obviously making it, men and women aglow. The issue is sharp and clear. Either we believe the voice of baptism, you are the son of God, or we believe the other voice, you are the son of God when you can prove it by signs. Yeah, it reminds me, just just a couple of days ago, my, I have a daughter in college, and she wrote a paper on Flannery O'Connor, the novelist and uh, yeah. story writer. And and it's the title of it, and we read it together on Sunday afternoon, my wife and I, and I was like, wow, that's amazing And our daughter wrote this, because it's a really good paper. But she, it's called Flannery O'Connor and the Gospel of the Broken Body. And let me just, I won't read the whole paper, but I'll read a, a line, because I think it touches on this. In many Christian uh, stories, authors tell their readers that once they accept Christ into their heart, their cancer will be cured, their marriage will be fixed, and the 30-year drought in their town will end with a miraculous thunder breaking from the heavens. Flannery O'Connor does nothing of the sort. Serial killers, murder, kidnapping, child deaths, 
arson, and mutilation are all plot points O'Connor uses to point readers to the redemption and grace found in Christianity. Amen to that. And it's, and you know, it's, again, we see this in the example of the Savior who has to deal with the kind of attacks on identity that, that his followers do. And, and, you know, he does that for us uh, as second Adam is new Israel. And so it's a great, great set of texts for the first Sunday in Lent. Thanks for doing this, Greg. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review and subscribe or pass it along to a friend via email or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Greg Strawbridge for being my guest today. And thanks again to you all for listening. Until next time, fare thee well.